Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the term pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest or two who offer unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a new book, which I quote, invites white people to talk about race with one another in ways that are generative, sustaining and lead to real change. Starting from the words of James Baldwin and Toni Morrison that racism is a white person problem, the authors say it's time for white people to see how racism hurts them too and to start to do something about it. Ali Michael is the co-founder and co-director of the Race Institute for K-12 Educators and the author of Raising Race Questions, Whiteness, Inquiry and Education 2015 and winner of the 2017 Society of Professors of Education Outstanding Book Award. And Eleonora Bartoli is a clinical psychologist specializing in trauma, resilience building, and multicultural social justice counseling, having left behind a, an extensive career in academia. Their book is Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. Ali and Eleonora, thank you for being here. Dr. Francois, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I, first off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourselves. For those who can't see you, who are listening in, you're both racialized as white. You decided to write this book, which is inviting white people to engage with anti-racism. And you open the book itself by talking about your personal journeys, right? So can you share a little bit about why you decided to write this book? What, what brought you here? I'm very clear, this is Allie, that I could not have written this book or even possibly pronounced the title when I was growing up because I grew up in a place where we didn't talk about whiteness. We didn't talk about race at all. I was socialized. I was taught by my family, by my community, that it's rude to talk about race. It's the racists who talk about race. And so I was actively trained to be colorblind, to ignore anything that was racialized, and in doing so, to really maintain the racial status quo and to not think anything about anti-racism. And it wasn't until I got to college where I was really challenged to see all the ways in which I had learned not to talk about race and that I needed to begin to undo that, not just academically, but physiologically that I, when I started to talk about race, I would stutter and stumble and get confused. Um, and, and you know, I try to make a statement and then I think, wait a second, am, am I allowed to say that word or am I offending somebody? And my face would get red. And it wasn't until many years after college, after studying academically and learning about race, um, that I met Eleonora at a conference where somebody, uh, actually it was Elizabeth Denevi, who runs a podcast, Teaching While White, who was, she was leading a workshop on how white people can support other white people to learn how to be anti-racist. And Eleonora turned to me and said, you wanna do this? You wanna start a group? And we started this tiny group. It was just Eleonora and me, my partner, my sister and my sister's partner. And we met monthly for years and we read books about race and we talked, we practiced talking about it. We practiced making mistakes. <clears throat> We asked all the stupid questions that we felt racist for having, um, that we didn't feel like we could ask anywhere else. And we fostered this connection, which lasts till today, 20 years later, where we think together about uh, where, how am I going to drive through the city? Where am I going to send my kids to school? Um, where am I going to do my shopping? How am I going to live my life and my career in an anti-racist way? And so... Our vision with this book is to support other white people to recognize that anti-racism isn't just a moment. It's not just a book that you read. It's a lifetime. It's a path. And that when, if we're going to be on this path throughout the course of our lives, we need support. 
and we can get support from other white people. People of color and native people have their hands full. They don't need to be teaching us the answers to all of our stupid questions. You know, there is no stupid question, but if a question is so embarrassing that you don't ask it, it might qualify as a stupid question. And that is where white people can actually, you know, support, walk with each other on an anti-racist path, pick each other up when we fall down, you know, commiserate when we make stupid, mis what, not stupid mistakes, um, embarrassing mistakes, racist mistakes, um, so that we can keep going and not give up because it's going to take millions of white people walking an anti-racist path for more than eight generations to really eradicate racism. And we're not gonna be able to sustain that kind of momentum and energy if we think we can do it all by ourselves. Thank you. Uh, Eleonora, uh, before I jump in, so many things I wanna ask, but I wanna hear your story too. Thank you. Um, my tra trajectory was a little bit different because I grew up, I was raised and grew up in Italy. I came to the US in a, a late adolescent for uh, undergraduate and then um, I thought I was going to be here for a year. This is about 32 years later. <laughs> so um, in Italy, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, race was not really visible and very much not an open conversation. So, and racism was pretty much, um, there's not such a thing as much as in the United States in terms of uh, political correctness. So you really can hear a lot of the overt racist statements made as matter of fact. And when I came to the US, you know, as an Italian, I was very open to ask questions and to notice things. And when I noticed a lot of things, I was given explanation. When I noticed things about race, I was shut down. And that kept happening. When I asked questions about race, I was told that I was racist for asking the question, I was racist for noticing race. And so I was beginning to get socialized in what Ali was talking about in terms of colorblindness and the impoliteness of actually asking race questions. And it wasn't until an internship that you do full time at the end of a doctoral program in psychology that I saw this amazing uh, documentary by Lee Moonwa, The Color of Fear is iconic, uh, probably being viewed by millions of people. Um, and I don't know how frequently it is, but I highly recommend it. And there, there is a character named David who asks all the so-called stupid questions. And we're gonna circle back to that in a second. And those were all the questions that I had. So I knew he was asking and saying all the wrong things, but was literally, uh, sort of listening to every breath it was taking. So what's the answer? So what's the answer? Um, and I want to say about the, the stupid questions that what I've come to understand that yes, they're stupid questions, but there is a reason why people, why white people don't know those answers. So it's not so much a stupid question as much as, it's not because we are stupid that we ask those questions, it's because we are human, we are really good students, and we're really good at absorbing messages about what makes us safe and what keeps us safe. And so having been socialized in a white supremacist context, I in a white body have learned what keeps me safe uh, to do that. And so you learn intrinsically to navigate that process. I always say, I didn't come to the US and sat down in a classroom and took a white supremacist uh, course that gets, you know, uh, CEs that I have to take once in a while so that I remember all this white supremacist uh, biases. No, I just have to function as a white person in the US. If, if I function in a way that keeps me safe, then I will slowly absorb racist messages and I will live in racist ways. Okay, that's, uh, wow, there's there's so much to unpick. Let, let's start maybe, maybe because you both talked about this idea of um, the wrong things. Um, so when we have conversations, obviously, on race, um, white people often feel uh, like there are things that we can't say, shouldn't say, are going to get wrong. Um, but So what do we actually mean by the wrong things? Are we saying that white people will betray white supremacist assumptions that they've absorbed and then feel shame about the fact that we have vocalized those in a public arena when at the same time most people racialized as white think of themselves as not being racist? So Eleonora and I came up with a saying a, a long time ago with that little group which is do the wrong thing because what we realized was when we would we do these role plays and we would brainstorm how would you respond? So I was sitting on the subway right now and I saw a, a racist uh, event transpiring in front of me and I was not sure what to do. And all these things went through my mind. Do I sit with the 
person who's being harassed? Do I stand up to the person who is is saying something? Do I um, pull the you know emergency stop on the train? Do I sit here and do nothing? Which is ultimately what I did because it, I'm thinking in my head like, well, I don't want to be the the anti-racist white savior, and I don't want to cause more tension and trouble. And and what we decided as we kind of role played different responses was that we probably could critique any response, but we can also critique doing nothing. And so, so we say do the wrong thing, because if you come up with something, some course of action and it's not right, you, the, the only problem with that is if you don't learn from it, if you don't take in the feedback and the reaction and learn from it and, and debrief. So a couple of years later, I was walking in New York City and, um, I saw some police pull over a young man of color and I just stopped and started filming and the police started yelling at me and they said I was making it harder. And then eventually they had stopped the traffic stop. I kept walking around the block and the police kind of slowly rolled up to where I was and said, you're making things harder. You're making things more dangerous for that young man. You should never be filming police during a traffic stop. And so I went on Facebook and I said, I really want to weigh in with my <laughs> friends of color. You know, am I making this worse? Am I, am I doing something I shouldn't be doing? And multiple men of color wrote back and said, lots of people said, yes, you're making it worse. You're making it more dangerous. But lots of men of color said, I would feel safer if a white woman I didn't know started filming during a traffic stop. Thank you for doing that. Keep doing it. And so I ultimately... Um, anytime I see a man of color pulled over, I, I try to pull over and just be present and see see how I can help and just witness what's happening. And um, um, is that right? I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many different things that point to what is right and what is wrong. And um, I think the question is, is, is my action helping to challenge white supremacy? Is my challenge, is, is my action making the world safer or um, a place of where people of color might feel or native people might feel more security or less alone. Um, so I think when we ask like what's wrong, I think when people are afraid of doing something wrong, they're often afraid of offending or they themselves are afraid of looking racist, but it's because we keep it at the individual level. Like you said something racist and, or a reflection, as you said, Dr. Francois, as you said something that's a reflection of your racist socialization. So therefore you're bad. And that's how we're raised. There's good white people and bad white people, and we should be good white people. We should not be racist. But we are all socialized within a racial hierarchy that says white people are better and more deserving of opportunities and resources than all other people. That black people are inferior and, and less deserving of resources and opportunities than all other people. So we have this racial hierarchy that we live within, that we are taught, we're socialized within. And so when we say something that reflects our socialization within this racial hierarchy, we shouldn't be surprised. And if what we're trying to do is be anti-racist white people, then the feedback that we did something quote unquote wrong just simply tells us I need to change that because that was a reflection of my socialization. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. The bad comes in if I'm not hearing the feedback, I'm not making change. But isn't part of the issue what you've just discussed in the very scenario you outlined, which is how do you know what is right and wrong who who's 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 out here get, set, setting out the right and wrong and um and in the scenario you gave obviously to some people it was right and to some people it was wrong so i wrote a blog after the murder of george floyd it was a very acutely distressing time and moment which has lasted a long time in the us i think sometimes it's might be difficult to understand for somebody who doesn't live in the us the tension and really the the uh, the, the the upset that happened during 2020 and continuing afterwards. And so in that moment, I wrote a blog that was an open letter to white people. And one of the things that prompted that blog was a message on a listserv that asked the question from a white woman, well, what are we to do? You know, and this is such a classic question that we as white people and myself have asked, so what am I to do about this? As if there haven't been books and answers and blogs and articles, seven or five things white people can do about racism for such a long time. And what happens, we have lost our connection 
to our guts, and I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that, that actually gives us a compass for action. So why supremacy has um, uh, also socialized in a very reactive kind of uh, series of behaviors. So it's it's good to have quick answers and, and jump in quickly and be authentic, but by which we really mean just seeing the first thing that comes to your mind and be truthful. That's really giving airtime to your flight, fight, freeze system, which is the first line of defense in our neurological system. That's just a, a sort of a first line of defense that keeps us physiologically and physically safe. Now we have to understand that that part of our neurological system doesn't actually distinguish between physical safety and emotional safety. That's hugely important. So if you're about to make me feel bad or if you're about to attack me, that part of my nervous system reacts in the same exact way. And my brain is literally being told, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. So I'm gonna defend against somebody who tells me, ooh, that was bad. You said something negative, you know, you said something racist. I'm like, oh no, I didn't, I couldn't. If I admit it, I'm gonna die. <laughs> you know? uh, because I'm gonna lose the connection, which is really how we learn what to do, circling back to that question, if I sit in your shoes, if I quiet the fly, fly, freeze reaction for a moment, that reaction closes all my empathy uh, centers in my brain. So it literally closes my capacity to connect with you. So by, if I quiet that down, that capacity reopens, I can connect with you. And the beautiful thing is that my connection with you makes me in some way taste where you're in. So I have to emotionally regulate, right? Because if you're in distress, now I'm in distress. But if I can emotionally regulate and stay in that moment with you, that message comes into my body, so to speak, and my brain actually knows what to do because I would know what to do. I don't know if you've ever been on a playground and you see all these caregivers, all the children. One child falls down, you see like 15 heads turning, you know, because in that moment, we're just like having this natural propensity to do something about it. That's compassionate action really comes from a place where you're connecting with that person in front of you. And so what happens for us as white people, when we are told we are being racist, like, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Because we're actually going to flight or a fight response or a freeze response. And we lose the connection to our guts that actually tells us what to do. So we're fundamentally good people. And we know that because if we were not good people, we would be extinct as a species. <laughs> we wouldn't exist. We cannot survive alone. None of us can at any point in our life. So we need profoundly each other, not just from a very practical standpoint, we can feed ourselves and so on, but even the cells of our bodies, the main hormones that makes them healthy, those hormones are only triggered in socially loving, compassionate interactions. So we need each other physiologically, we need each other psychologically, we need each other practically. And so that's why so much of our capacity to function comes from this empathy connection that we have for each other and this fundamental quote unquote goodness, you know, which is really imprinted in us so if we can connect with with that we'll know what to do now in the last chapter of our book we have a really clear you know another version of the same five things you can do as white people to to fight racism uh, but none of that will work and you find yourself circling back and back to the question what do i do what do i do if you don't actually connect to your gut and that's a practice so your flight fight free system it's fully developed at birth your empathy, attachment, connection system only gets developed as you are embedded in loving connections. So it's a practice. You actually have to cultivate it. But that is the secret to anti-racist action. But I guess if you cultivate, if you um, socialize, obviously, as a white person in a white supremacist society, which uh, most of us are, then the empathy that you're discussing isn't necessarily there. Like that, that, that sort of feeling that you were saying, if you if you can avoid the fight and flight, that you'll kind of naturally sit back into it. And I'm and I'm also sort of slightly conscious of, you know, I know you said, you know, we are good people and, and, and I'm, I'm assuming you mean we, we humans as opposed to we white people, but oh, I, yes. I, <laughs> uh, just, just to qualify, but the, the reason I qualify it is because um, I, I also wonder how many people of color listen to, you know, uh, white people talking about anti-racism and how hard it is and think, why is it so hard for white people to do the right thing? Yes, can I, I'll take this one as well, just start it. Um, so let me start with the last question and then I will respond to the first part of your question. It's so hard because we're human. 
literally it's because we live in human bodies. And the moment you realize we live in human bodies and have some compassion with ourselves for what's happening to us, uh, then we can actually work with ourselves and bypass that first initial reaction. So one thing that, for example, Robin D'Angelo talks about is white fragility. And when you look at all those responses, and she lists a brilliant book with so much richness that really makes you understand how as a white person, you truly are socialized in the micro moments of your life. And when you look at what white fragility looks like, it's pretty much a trauma response. It's a mini trauma response. It's big T, small T. And if you we actually are able to notice that response, come back to it, and then choose a different action. We are not just a series of reflexes, uncontrollable and unmediated reflexes. They're very simple practices that help you notice their reaction and come back. If you don't notice their reaction, you'll believe the message your brain is telling you that tells you it's uh, it, you're in danger. So Ali. So uh, clearly Eleonora does the internal piece and I do the external piece and we try to mix back and forth. But I want to share this definition of whiteness from Paul Kivel, who's a white Jewish activist in San Francisco, who says whiteness is a constantly shifting boundary, separating those who are entitled to have certain privileges from those whose exploitation and vulnerability to violence is justified by their not being white. What he is saying in part is that if you are white, you are not exposed to the exploitation and vulnerability to violence that people of color and native people are exposed to. And what that means is that living within a racial hierarchy as a white person keeps you safe. And so there are all of these tiny incentives that white people have to maintain the racial status quo because we are safe and we feel safe and we feel uh, happy <laughs> within that. I mean, not every white person is happy. And if you're a trans person, non-binary person, gay or lesbian person who's white, you, you don't have the same safety as a straight cisgender person. Um, you know, so there's like a rate, if you're wor a working class white person, you don't have as much safety as if you have, if you're a white person with a lot of money. Um, so there's there's gradations within it, but generally being at the top of a racial hierarchy brings a sense of, uh, I mean, brings very tangible security and safety um, that we don't even see the incentives for um, continuing to perpetuate. And so I think, you know, we, we even have a chapter, I think, called Why Is This So Damn Hard? <laughs> you know, why is it hard to do the right thing? Partly because we're trying to maintain, we, we don't even... First of all, we don't even know that we're trying to maintain this sense of safety because to us, to white people, it just feels normal. And, and often we don't even recognize, we don't even hear that many people of color and many native people don't feel that. Half the things we're afraid of that we think might happen in our society or in the future, like the unraveling of the, of the society or the, um, uh, you know, destruction of our environments from climate change are already happening to native people and people of color in the US. And we're often unaware of that because we live in segregated spaces, which again comes back to the system. Um, we talked um, uh, early on about your bios, but I wanna ask you what makes you qualified to write an anti-racism book? I know there's a lot out here in the marketplace on anti-racism. I know that there will be people who will say, you know, anti-racism books, the best people placed to write those books are people of color, the people who are actually directly impacted by those issues and and even if you're going to do one as a joint book then you know where is the accountability i guess from a third party who can you know call us out on the blind spots that you know the whole movement is ultimately about challenging um so so why you the people who say that the best people to write anti-racism books are people of color or native people are absolutely right. There's no, we would know nothing. Eleanor and I would know nothing about racism if it weren't for listening to the stories and the realities of people of color and native people. And, and that's part of why that empathetic connection is so important to maintain. If I can't hear what is happening for people of color and native people, 
then I and I can't be in empathetic connection with them. I can't really know much about racism. And in fact, there was a time in my life when I only read books by people of color and native people. I swore off anything by white people. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't think they had anything to offer me. And so I can relate also to that stage of identity development where it's like, I need the truth because I have learned my whole life from white people only. And I everything I learn about racism is shocking to me. I, mean, I can remember in my 20s just thinking that, how, do, how did I not know this? this I can't, why did nobody tell me this? Um, and then I started to read anti-racist white activists and writers and sociologists who helped me see my place. I mean, so the, the question that you asked Dr. Francoise, which is, why do we need to talk about whiteness? Or we need to, you say we need to talk about whiteness. My answer to that, like, why do we need to talk about it? It's because I can't understand my place in this whole racialized puzzle as a white person if I don't understand whiteness. Because to me, it was previously invisible. And so there are also many people of color who write about whiteness, but there are also people of color saying, like, white people need to explore whiteness. White people need to understand whiteness. You need to understand whiteness before you understand anything about me. And so um, I'm also a co-editor of the Guide for White Women Who Teach Black Boys and a book called Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls. These are books that were written on, you know, in multiracial editorial teams with a multiracial team of authors. And in both of those books, I said, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about black boys it, to write this book. And my colleague, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. said, no, you know about white people. And the thing is, we can't have a book that's just about black boys because black boys are not the problem. We need the 85% of teachers in the U.S. who are white to understand themselves before they even begin to try to understand black boys because so much of their misconceptions are related to their whiteness. And so with this book, we were nervous. I mean, we, we didn't want to have a book that was just by two white women with no accountability structure. And um, so we've had colleagues of color and Native colleagues who've written who've read drafts of the book and given us feedback, um, some of their notes and their praises and the praise pages of the book. Um, but we, we have these ongoing accountability relationships with people who have been invited explicitly to give us critical feedback and to help hold us accountable, and who I think also really see us as people who they expect to be talking to other white people and, and um, doing so because white people are gonna listen differently to other white people than they often do to people of color and native people. So we'll often get calls from people of color who say, my white people aren't listening to me. Can you come in? And and it, you know, in some ways, it doesn't. It's like it's a function of racism that that people might listen to us differently. But in other ways, it's a developmental function. Like if, for white people, depending on where they are in their racial identity development, sometimes they're gonna be able to hear it differently from a white person who says, "Yeah, I was raised to be colorblind too. Yeah, I find this really damn hard too." And here are some of the strategies I use. And you're not alone. That's the point of this book, is that people of color and Native people should not have to speak gently to white people, spell it out for us, hold our hands while we do the learning that we're doing. And yet, many white people need to be spoken gently to, need to have their hands held. And I don't say that in a patronizing way. They, they need support along the journey. It really actually is hard. And where they can get that, the person who can play that role is another white person in their life who can say like, yeah, let me walk with you. I'm going to help you go from step two to step three, because your colleague of color needs you to be at step 50 by yesterday. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get there. You can just take one step at a time. So I'm going to walk with you so that two years from now, you are the person your colleague of color needs you to be. But if I just call you out right now today for being racist, like, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not, not that you don't need to be helped to understand your racism, but if I just shame you and cut you off, you're actually never going to be the person your colleague of color needs you to be. What What about this um, idea of, because I was reading in your book about these white affinity groups, right? So obviously you, you ultimately wrote the book as two white women. That was a, obviously a choice that you made not to have a third party who might maybe be a person of color. And you, you talk about these white affinity groups, which are intentionally white dedicated groups, right? 
Um, and I, and I want to ask you about those spaces because I think one of the things that I I mean I I I balk at the idea of white only spaces and and I and I and I'm sure as anti-racist uh, campaigners you do too. Uh, but but I so I want to understand why you know why white affinity white dedicated spaces and um, I I suppose uh, linked to that you know to to be perfectly honest on on this very podcast I hesitated for a very long time to have white interlocutors because for me the conversation about whiteness is primarily about giving a platform to people uh, of color who can help elucidate you know what whiteness is to me and anyone else who who, who might be listening um but 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 ultimately uh, not uh, occupying the space of defining whiteness and and i think about the fact that you know uh, whiteness studies for example um in academia was started out uh, as as a as an umbrella underneath black studies you know white studies was accountable to black study departments and you know there, there was a big critique of when the white studies department tried to create their own white studies department in parallel because actually the accountability that we find which is you know we can have our white conversations where maybe there's a bit more hand holding that can be done but unless there's some accountability to the people who are actually on the front line the people whose lives are on the line then i i have a lot of concerns about those spaces so so tell me about the logic behind these white affinity groups so we balk at the idea of all white spaces, but usually most people only, and, and I know you're an exception here, but most people only balk at it when it's an anti-racist space. So we'll go to the faculty meeting or the hiring committee meeting or the party planning meeting, and it's all white and we don't even notice it because we're not talking about race. So, so many white Americans exist in all white segregated spaces where we never, where we should be questioning, this space should not be all white, what is happening here? And then we create these all white spaces for anti-racist learning. And it's like, hold up, hold up, how can we learn about racism without people of color? But here's the thing, if we have spaces, if people of color are always, always have to be in the room to tell us their story, to, to share their pain, then, it's, it, it, and and while we discover our biases and share stories of the crappy things we've done because of our socialization, then they it's like a constant re-traumatizing of people of color. And then maybe we don't do it because it's like, well, I'll just listen to you. When really what I need to be doing is practicing. I need to practice the words I was trained not to say. I need to see the unconscious bias that I have that I don't want to look at. I need to explore the thing I did to my colleague or the person I ignored at the grocery store who was in, in, in going, undergoing a racist event and I didn't step in. And I need to process that with somebody. And, white, and people of color should not have to be exposed to that. And so the anti-racist learning space, it's just a pedagogical tool. Like sometimes we put people in pairs. Sometimes we have people do a PowerPoint presentation. Sometimes we put people in anti in in all white spaces to do the work that they have to do because very often white people have like even white people who've read a lot and learned a lot about racism have like a arithmetic understanding of racism. It's like they can add and subtract and sometimes multiply and divide. They have some vocabulary words, but people of color are at this other level where like if you just show them the the equation for a three-dimensional graph, they can picture it in their head. It's like they have a calculus understanding of racism. Right. And they're, right? They're like, I'm so far ahead of where you are, the questions you're asking, that if I have to sit in this math class with you for another 10 seconds, I'm going to scream, you know? And so, like, but that doesn't, I mean, that's like, that's part of our socialization. White people would be better at talking about racism if we also had to wake up every day and deal with it the way that people of color have to. But since we don't, we're unskilled. And so white anti-racist learning spaces are skill building spaces and they are not intended to be segregated spaces. They often exist either in coalition with people of color spaces. So like in my graduate school, we had 
a um, a white anti-racist learning space that worked in conjunction with the Black Student Union, and we co-hosted events, and we uh, did some interventions when racist things happened on campus, and we worked together. The leaders of the groups worked together very closely, and then the groups collaborated. Um, often, we what we advise in the book is for um, people in those groups to have accountability partners, people of color who are compensated in some way to help the group think about what it is they're talking about and what it is they're learning. And ultimately, it's not a group for just sitting around talking about being white. And that's why we try to stay away from the word affinity. It's not just like, oh, we're buddies because we're all white. This is an explicitly anti-racist space. No white learning space should exist if it's not explicitly anti-racist. There's no other reason to have a separate space. And ultimately, you're reading books by people of color. You're maybe reading the um, black at Instagram posts for your institution. So you hear what black uh, people in your institution are experiencing. Um, you're watching movies by people of color. So there are ways to have the voices of people of color and native people informing those groups. They just don't have to be in the group trying to you know, repeatedly get white people who've been socialized in the same way to understand the thing that we repeatedly misunderstand or don't want to take in. Um, I want to ask you about this anti-racist culture that you are trying to encourage people to forge in the book. Where, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is this notion that anti-racism is in white people's interests. I've, I've had, you know, over uh, 60 conversations on this podcast. I would say a majority of people I speak to um, are quite cynical about the idea that anti-racism is something that white people, a majority of white people, will, uh, uh, you know, subscribe to uh, voluntarily, only because obviously we're talking about a system of, of privilege and, and and hierarchy, and and in many ways, what we're saying as anti-racists is you are not deserving of privilege or special treatment, or we are not deserving of any special status, and so. Um, uh, there's that quote, isn't there, that that to uh, to the privileged, equality feels like oppression because you're suddenly having to experience what fairness looks like, which is the same system for everyone. Um, and so I'm just wondering when you say that anti-racism is in the interest of white people, which, by the way, I do actually profoundly think it is. But I but but I know there's a lot of cynicism around this. So so it. How would you say that anti-racism is in the interest of white people? We believe that this is a question that white people, every white person needs to think about for themselves. It's going to be different for different people. Um, and and it's it's profoundly important because there's that quote, um, you know, if you're if you're here to help me go home, but if you're here to because my liberation is bound up with yours, then we can work together. And so if, you, if, if you're kind of working against racism from a, um, and I believe that's an Aboriginal woman who said that quote, um, if you're working against racism from a white savior perspective, which is also part of how white people get socialized, like I can work with people of color if it's a, from a charity-based perspective where I tell them the terms of the engagement and I just engage the way I want to, um, rather than changing systems that are um, oppressing them um, and oppressing me. And obviously not in the same way. White people are not hurt in the same way by racism as people of color and Native people. And yet I need to find the ways in which it hurts me so that I'm in this also for me. I'm not doing it from a paternalistic perspective. So there are multiple ways that I can think of, and some are personal. I can think of um, friendships that I would still have today if it weren't for racism. I spent a month traveling around the South in college um, with a with a class where we were studying the civil rights movement. And I had a black friend, I had a black friend. So the class had three white people and two black people. And so we all became really good friends. And the, the black man who was, I mean, he's a 19 year old boy on the trip invited me over to his common space at the end of the trip to hang out. And we had co-ed dorms and all gender dorms. And I was, you know, constantly in, I lived with men in my suite. Like I was used to being around men, but I was used to being around white men. And when I went into his, his common space, there were three other black men there and I could not stay. 
I could, I could not hang out with them. This was somebody I had spent a month traveling with. I knew him well. I loved him. I mean, he was my friend and I could not stay in his Why? presence because I was in a room with four black men and my body could not feel safe because of how much I'd been socialized to fear black people. Oh, you were scared. I was scared. Oh, right. And, and I was scared. And so I left and we stopped being friends. And I don't know what he thought was going on, but I'm very clear looking back on it. Like there are friendships and relationships I would have if it weren't for the racism. And, and like very clear, like specific people I can name. And then there are other friendships I do have because of the anti-racist practice that I've cultivated that I'm so grateful for. So that's one on a personal level. I can think of systemic things too that I want to share. But Eleanor, why don't you go first? Oh, I was just going to follow up on the on the importance in that moment when people say sort of, but why do we need this internal work? Why do we need to work with ourselves as we do out work, outside work, and anti-racist work? Is because the 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 outside work cannot happen without the internal work. So in that moment, you were having a, a fight or flight reaction, and you weren't aware of the fact that you were having it. You couldn't modulate it, and you couldn't come back, and that would have made your ability to do a U-turn and actually re-engage in that relationship. And that happens at all level. I sat on many uh, hiring committees for faculty uh, in academia. And the five flight freeze reaction happens so often, then that's really at the foundation of why you're not going to have hires of color, why entire companies are white or white and male. And so you think, you know, there's this sort of um, idea that this internal work is indulgent. And in fact, it's a very good strategy of white supremacy to say, oh, why would you think about yourself? Don't think about that. Because of course, if you did, you will break the very cycle that is necessary, the very mechanism that is necessary to keep this um, system in place. There are two things happening in the United States which are nothing short of fundamental. Because anti-racist education, in fact, has been successful in two ways. They've inserted social emotional learning into the curriculum, because I think to fight racism, you need emotion regulation and you need empathy. Without that, you can't fight racism. So what they're inserted in the curriculum is social emotional learning and critical race theory. History, I still am not quite sure what, what, um, what history is in the United States without African-American history. I'm not exactly sure what that actually is supposed to mean. So unless it's perfunctory history, so um, now the backlash is that is a, is a very strong legal movement to ban both critical race theory on any conversations about race and any conversations about social emotional learning specifically because it's challenging the boy's uh, masculinity, so to speak. In fact, you can't keep this system in place without dehumanizing us as white people by taking away the capacity for empathy and keeping us in a system that doesn't connect to other people. So to that, there is a huge cost. The relational cost, there is the real fundamental economic cost of not having diverse uh, workplaces, the really fundamental educational cost of not living in reality and teaching a delusional system. So the costs are enormous. Some of us may not feel it. And I think there's a whole other conversation to be had around white women specifically. We are trained to not understand the cost to ourselves of abiding by a system that makes us sort of operationalize and be the one pointing to the quote unquote danger. So your story, Ali, is not random that you were a white woman to fear a black man. You know, so that's the lie we are told, even though our safety doesn't come really in the way we're told it comes. But that's a way for us to use our bodies to preserve the system. So this is all by design. And, and it's the, the, the event is so wonderful because it's so uh, indicative of so many other forces they're keeping the system in place very strategically. Mm. Well, I know uh, for me personally, I, I anti-racism is linked to a wider sense of social justice that I feel very committed to, partly for faith reasons, but I, you know, maybe I'm certainly for cultural reasons too, but um, I would give, for example, the idea that I really believe that when you demean the humanity of one person, you demean the humanity of everyone, and that 
when you look and study um, the degradation of rights um, in societies, it always starts at the margins, but it never ends there. And it's something that's really stuck with me that um, if you see somebody's rights being curtailed and abused and degraded, just know that it never ever ends there. You might think, oh, it's the migrants, so it's the Jews, oh, it's black people, oh, it's Muslims, but actually, one day the premises that those rights, the fundamental rights, inalienable rights that we have to be treated fairly decency with decency and respect, that can be taken away. That's the premise. And so it's that premise that personally guides me in in this particular conversation. Um, uh, and which one, it, although although the podcast is we need to talk about whiteness, for me, this is one part of a bigger picture, you know, and it can't be anything else. Sorry, uh, Eliana, are you? In fact, it's such so beautifully said because a, a, a while ago, you know, I kept saying, yes, all the isms are interconnected, but it was this very vague idea. And then when you look at the way we are socialized, physiologically, psychologically, sociologically, you understand that racism couldn't stand without patriarchy, without homophobia, without Islamophobia. Actually, we need to have all the other ism or you couldn't keep up that system. And so it's really once you start unraveling any of the system that you begin to really see the connection between all of them. And when we see that, we see that women's rights and religious rights and um, uh, gay rights and so on really are fundamental to anti-racist work as well. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're going to have to go to our quick fire round. I could could have, there's so much more I would have loved to go through uh, with you. Um, quick fire round, so quick fire questions with quick fire responses, if you may. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? The definition we use is from Ruth Frankenberg, who's a white feminist sociologist, who says whiteness is a location of structural advantage of race privilege. It's also a standpoint. It's a place from which white people look at ourselves and others and at society. And third, it's it refers to a set of cultural practices that are usually unmarked and unnamed and held up as superior. I added that last part. Thank you. Um, uh, Eliano, do you want to add something or that's for both of Only you? Only thing yeah. that I want to really specify is that that system gets encoded in our physiological and neurological system as a filter on the basis of which we judge safety. And so we, so, so to summarize, we live in the system and the system lives in us. Within us, ooh, yeah. Um, what is the root of racism? So I'll start first. It, fundamentally, if you take away, if you insert the capacity for emotional regulation and empathy, you will undermine racism. There are just not enough bad people in the world to be able to keep up racism. You have to co-opt the goodness of people through the nervous system to be able to have them operationalize something that is against much of what their actual thriving is based upon. I believe racism was created to divide us for people who have power and who want more. And so, you know, I think it was fundamentally in the US about justifying slavery. Um, and to, if you can get white people to buy into whiteness, which as Eleanor has demonstrated, you can at this point is it's easy to do. Um, then you can perpetuate a system where we believe in the in this false construction of whiteness and blackness, which which actually are are false categories. We often hear the term black culture. I know a lot of people uh, very proudly um, defend the idea of a concept of black culture. Is there such a thing as white culture? I think white culture generally is just anything white people do. I think there's a lot of stuff white people do we don't have to be ashamed of or embarrassed about, but I do think there's an aspect of white culture that says if white people do it, therefore it's better than everybody else and therefore everybody else should be doing this. And this is where the cultural imperialism comes in. So um, I wrote an article with four colleagues of color about white culture in schools to demonstrate because you can't have you can't really see white culture unless you see it in relief against other racial cultural backgrounds. And what white culture, you know, white culture is there's a lot of things that like, OK, the potlucks maybe are white co culture, you know, or like, um, I don't know, there's like there's like lots of innocuous stuff about white culture, even just the slang I use is a white linguistic style. 
And if I think it makes me better, or if I think other people, in order to be professional or acceptable or worthy of protection in our society, need to talk and walk and dress and act like me, that's where white culture is a problem. So the so white culture becomes problematic when it asserts itself as superior, which of course is like a fundamental aspect of white culture in the racial hierarchy that we currently exist within. And in some way, the problem is that we don't talk about white culture, so we assume that's just normative, normal human. And then we consider everything else less than human. Can there be a pride in what we would call white societies, predominantly white societies, like European identity or American identity separate from white pride? Can white people be proud of a culture without falling into white pride? We believe, we have a whole chapter on this. I don't know if we can do a rapid fire answer, but we believe that there's a lot of things that white people can be proud of, but whiteness is not one of them. Once you learn what whiteness has, it doesn't mean you have to be ashamed of being a white person, but once I understand what whiteness is, I am compelled to actively work to change what whiteness means, to make it mean something different. I can't stop being white. I'm going to be white my whole life. And I can be proud of the efforts of white people who've come before me to change what whiteness means, to say I don't want it to mean domination and oppression, to, to unlearn my socialization. I can be proud of those efforts. But it doesn't make sense to be, once you know about whiteness, it doesn't really make sense to be proud of whiteness, but we can be really proud of 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 redefining, of making it mean something different. And because that ultimately is the task, is to make whiteness mean something different and to populate this this uh, world with anti-racist white people who are who look can look around and say, this isn't right and this is not something I want to be a part of. And it can be, I can be proud of certain things that might have been white-leaning because of the geography in which I've been living in. For example, I can be proud of certain Italian tradition as long as they're not um, critical of which ones are really enriching and connecting and which one are exploitative and divisive. So we also have to distinguish between you know, whiteness and within whiteness that also this ethnic consideration, just like in black culture, is not a one black culture. There's a lot of different nuances and those are two very different things. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So um, if people want to buy the book, is there a particular bookstore you'd recommend or location they should head to? For online buying, bookshop.org has the book and they'll also donate money to your local bookstore. It's also available at corwin.com. Fantastic. And if people want to connect with you two as individuals, is there some place you'd like to direct them to? Yes. Visit my website at allymichael.org. Or my website, eleonorabastoli.com. Fantastic. Ali and Eleonora, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dr. Francoise. I'm so glad you do this. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much.